Hello, welcome to the Harvard Alumni for Education podcast. My name is Rufina Park, HAED's Director of International Engagement. Today, we sat down with Dr. Nathaniel Dunnigan to talk about his organization, eChild, as well as his thoughts on how to create a sustainable education enterprise. Could you introduce yourself and eChild to our listeners? I'm Nathaniel Dunnigan, the founder and CEO of eChild Uganda. Um, A-Child was the first organization in Uganda to provide free antiretroviral therapy to children living with HIV and AIDS, and we've been doing this work with the great Ugandan team for 16 years now. I read in your interview with the Harvard Graduate School of Education in 2009 that after you visited Africa for the first time in 1998, that you held a yard sale, sold your car, and moved to Uganda within a year of visiting the continent. Tell us more about that. That sounds like quite an adventurous leap. I was very, very fortunate to have that experience of visiting Uganda in 1998. At that time, just before that, I was a deputy director of the Office of the Governor of Arizona and had a, uh, my eyes focused on a career in politics. Yet, uh, I had this opportunity to go and volunteer in Uganda. It was a month, an opportunity to do uh, prevention education for a group of people working with um, young people in the region. And uh, I went with a lot of hope in my heart. When I hit the ground and, and met my Ugandan colleagues, I realized that many of the people we were talking to um, the, for them, the prevention message was just too late. It, there was a need for treatment and care, especially for children. And I met so many children who were not living with AIDS. They were suffering and dying, and there wasn't even um, hospice care available in most places uh, in Uganda at that time. And so... I feel also blessed because at that time I was able to discover purpose and I feel that purpose is a wonderful gift and when you're able to discover purpose your life changes and uh, I feel very grateful for that fact and so with this amazing team of Ugandan volunteers who were ready from day one even before there was funding even before there was a name for the organization even before we were registered or official or had any recognition of any kind, this, this team of Ugandans was ready to, to, to go to work. And so that's what we did. We just started with the first children and uh, were able to provide hospice care. And then uh, in short order, we're able to provide life-saving care through the introduction of antiretroviral therapy. I, I just can't imagine going to a continent for the first time and having the courage to even think of um, as an outsider to provide a solution and to gain trust um, with the people in the community there. I have found that the best way to gain trust is to ask advice and to seek advice. We didn't come in thinking that we had a solution. We just came in offering support um, and wanted to be very sensitive to um, finding, identifying the best ways to do so. So how did you go from basing your fundraising efforts from people that you already had contact with to contacting new people who had not heard of who you were before and didn't know your track record? Well, and remember, this was before Facebook. 
so this right. is before social media, so we didn't have a hashtag that, that, <laughs> that we were able to use or anything like that. Um, we were able to use, um, again, the, the reality on the ground, the photographs and the stories. I will say that the power of, of the story is something that is not to be discounted by creating an email list that went to people who were interested and by telling our story in very real, um, uh, authentic terms, uh, those emails got forwarded and passed on to, to the right people. And then I was also able to uh, be invited to testify before Congress at a hearing that was um, called AIDS Orphans um, in Africa, Identifying Best Practices of Care. And so through my testimony there with a few other colleagues doing great work on the ground on the continent, was able to be introduced to um, others who were like-minded and who were interested in being of support. Right. And I was reading on your website that a child earns as much as 70% of its budget um, to its own business, entirely managed by an Ugandan team. And I think that's what a lot of enterprises hope for, that it's sustainable, um, self-sustaining, so it doesn't have to rely on outside donors all the time. Can you share a little bit more about how this works? Yes, I actually have a lot to say about this. You know, in social entrepreneurship, I think the next step that is often discussed is this notion of sustainability. And usually within within, um, that conversation about sustainability, there is a lot of focus on the financial sustainability piece, which is not to be discounted. However, equally important with financial sustainability is administrative sustainability or leadership sustainability and developing a team that can sustain the organization without regard to where those resources are coming from is just as important as having the inflow of resources. Because I've seen a lot of well-funded organizations as we all have, that aren't really doing a lot of good work, even though the resources exist. So that administrative sustainability is more important than the financial sustainability. However, obviously, work cannot continue without resources. And so I knew that going in, um, I was aware of founder's syndrome, which is something that's also discussed a lot about how usually a young and usually charismatic founder starts an organization, maybe something like a child, and goes, um, uh, is very successful for a period of time, but then the founder can also be the same one that kills the very organization they created. And so I was aware of, of that tendency and of that reality, and so tried to be very sensitive to that from the beginning. And one of the ways that we did that was by not having one founder, by having, again, this Ugandan team that acted in that role as uh, founding partners. But to answer your question more specifically, uh, we first started with a chicken farm and we're raising eggs. That was successful and we got thousands of eggs every month, but uh, you know, you can't sell an egg for very much money um, anywhere, but especially in uh, a village in Uganda. So that just was not really enough of a resource for us. So we started an art gallery and a cafe on the equator line um, in Uganda between Kampala and Masaka where our headquarters are. And at that time there was nothing on the equator line and through a grant from USAID we were able to start this gallery that's still there and uh, produces a, a big percentage of our income. 
but we've also started other restaurants and cafes and um, a guest house. And over the years, we started those, made them into successful ventures, and then sold them off um, to generate cash for the organization. I think there can be too much of a focus on financial sustainability to the point that some donors um, are kind of losing sight of the beauty of compassion and the power of, of giving and the power of sacrifice and how that adds a very important ingredient to our relationship with one another as citizens of the same globe and how, how important giving can be. And so uh, I think we run the risk in this conversation of sustainability of suggesting that, that giving, a, that compassion are somehow bad words and a sign of weakness. And I think we need to be really careful about not going there about including this very important element of sharing that makes um, organizations like A Child all the more special and even more beautiful than if they were just financially sustained thanks to a business on the ground somewhere. Right. So you're saying it's definitely much more than you know financial sustainability. Can you talk a little bit more about what your thoughts are on the current landscape and discussions about social entrepreneurship? Yes, I'm very happy to do that, actually, because, uh, again, I think we have a lot of important and, and fascinating and um, empowering interest in this notion of social entrepreneurship and of startups, and I will never suggest that we should not have those things. I think that they are limited, however, because they focus so much on that startup piece that they they forget to provide enough support in the post-startup phase. Um, in fact, many uh, organizations, many efforts to fund and support social entrepreneurs are specifically limited to the first year, or first two years, or first three years of an organization, or to the first X amount of dollars in the budget, etc. which is fine. But then we need to continue to develop new ways to support those same ventures after that first two or three year period or after the X amount of dollars in the budget. Because what happens after that? What generally happens is either you have the emergence of this founder syndrome, which I referred to earlier, where a founder is unable to transition from startup to sustainability in their own psyche, in their own thinking, in their own leadership process. And part of that is because their, 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 their support system goes away because they're no longer uh, entrepreneurs, they're now CEOs, they're no longer startups, they're now sustainers, and yet there aren't the resources in place to really support them in the way that there was in that startup phase. And I, I think we can do a much better job of that. The other thing that we tend to do is we praise an entrepreneur for doing something new and doing it in a new way. That's what an entrepreneur is. It's not just a, a social entrepreneur anyway. It's not just someone who's starting something, but is starting something in a new way, has a new approach, a new answer to an existing um, social problem. Well, what happens when we do something new is we tend to make mistakes because it's never been done before. And what often happens, I find, in social entrepreneurship is we praise the entrepreneur for their innovation, we praise them for their new ideas, but then as soon as they hit a, a problem or two and make a mistake or two, then we pile on with a lot of criticism and I say we take them from hero to zero because we take them from that hero innovation phase 
to this um, place of great criticism and chastisement because they tripped and fell along the way somewhere. And I think we need to do a much better job of, of, of building in safeguards so that we don't do that. Mistakes are an essential part of social entrepreneurship. And when we pile on and dismiss an, uh, an organization because it hit a mistake phase, we're losing the value of a lot of learning. And there's much more learning that comes from mistakes than there is from successes, I find. And um, in fact, my, if you're around me very long, you'll hear me say that my main leadership guiding principle is let's make new mistakes. Let's, let's, let's not be mistake-free, but let's like, make a mistake that has not been made before so that, that we can learn and we can move forward. And that goes back to how we started this conversation when I said that I found one of our successes emerged from the fact that we were so focused on seeking advice. And by seeking advice, we were able to identify the mistakes that others had made so that we didn't have to repeat those same mistakes. And I'm all about doing what we can to share our mistakes with new entrepreneurs and new startups so that um, they don't repeat those mistakes as well. And more learning can happen through the making of different mistakes. Can you share an example of a mistake that you made in the past with a child um, and how you recovered from that and you learned and allowed that mistake to help you? Yes, I think that the biggest mistake um, that comes to mind at this time is again with regard to this idea of financial sustainability. By overselling the idea that what we needed to do is develop on-the-ground business ventures that would entirely fund the organization and cut out the need for donors. That it cuts out a very beautiful, essential part of the offering. The work that we're doing of caring for children is an offering of compassion. It's an, a ministry of care and of service. And when we limit that offering to something that is entirely finance-based, we, we cut out a whole level of energy and of um, spirituality that I find emerges from global cooperation, global partnerships, and inviting the compassion of others to support the work on the ground. And so that's my biggest mistake that I feel that we have made is misunderstanding what sustainability means and assuming that it refers only to finances. So if you were giving advice to someone who's listening to this podcast, who is just starting out as an entrepreneur and wants to be there with their organization in the long run, they want to make sure they are a sustainer. They are the CEO that carries the organization for the long term. What kind of advice would you give them? Run. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, but I, I say that I'm kidding, but I mean that a little bit seriously and be, be very sure. You know, this is not something to be taken lightly. I liken it to maybe getting married or... Uh, probably a better metaphor is uh, that of having a child. It's not something you do lightly. It's not something that you can just do for a year or so and walk away from it. It's a long-term commitment. And I think that uh, comparing it to having a child is really important to answering your questions specifically. 
Because, you know, when you're a new parent and you're caring for a baby, uh, the way that you engage with that baby is very different than the way that you engage with a teenager, an adolescent, and then an adult child. And a parent who always treats their child as if they are a baby is doing their child a great disservice. The child cannot develop, the child cannot grow, the child cannot become their own person if the parent continues to treat him or her as a baby. When you're first starting it, you get to decide exactly what the logo is, you get to decide what the leadership style is going to look like, you get to decide uh, what color the buildings are going to be painted, you get to decide when staff meetings are going to be or put another way, you have to decide all the things. You have to make all those decisions. But then as the child grows, you have to allow them to make their own decisions about what they're going to wear. As they become a teenager, what language they're going to speak, what, what words they're going to use, what friends they're going to make. And as a parent, sometimes you don't understand those decisions. And as a founder, sometimes you don't understand the decisions made by your leadership team or the way that the organization evolves and begins to, to behave and yet you have to evolve with them. Otherwise, um, you definitely stop the growth of the organization and do it a disservice in terms of development. Mm. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? I think that uh, I would add that in this idea of um, founder's syndrome or of not allowing your child to come of age or whatever framework works for you in thinking about it, I think that um, there are two important considerations that are often left out of the social entrepreneurship and startup conversation. And that is, number one, some organizations have a shelf life. They just are not meant to exist forever. Perhaps they've been started to serve one very specific need and when that need disappears from the landscape, the organization needs to consider itself a success and not be ashamed of closing up and moving on to something different. And yet closing up and moving on are often considered signs of failure. And I think we, we need to get rid of that idea and recognize that uh, the shelf life for some organizations is not a bad thing, but actually a very good thing. The second point that I really want to highlight is that Compassion has a very diverse face. And I think that one of the wonderful things about social entrepreneurship and supporting people in their startups is that they're doing things in different ways, in new ways, in innovative ways. That's what we like about them. So we need to understand that they're going to be diverse. They're going to look different. And we cannot take them from innovation and celebrating their diversity and then try to, a long way, force them into a standardized model that was so very different from what their vision was in the beginning. So that, that diversity has to be celebrated long-term and not just in the startup phase. Well, there you have it. If you'd like to learn more about Nathaniel's organization, please visit aidchild.org. That's aidchild.org. Harvard Alumni for Education, HAED, aims to create a strong, connected, collaborative community of Harvard University alumni who are practitioners, researchers, and leaders in the field of education. If you're a member of the Harvard community who'd like to join the SIG, please visit harvardaed.org. That's harvardaed.org.